It is good to see you all, and um, man, just special place in heaven for braving the, the, you know, the weather and coming out. As Matt said earlier, you are heroes um, for that. If I didn't have to be here this morning, I'm not sure. I haven't yet decided um, if I'd have braved um, the roads. Not a fan of the winter. That is not a very well-kept secret, but I'm thankful to be in the house of the Lord, surrounded by the love of his people. What an amazing thing to uh, sing to our resurrected King together. Again, if you're a guest with us, a special welcome to you. Uh, my name is Kondo. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And um, this morning, I have the privilege of continuing uh, a series that we started last week. This is a four-week series that we are calling Unsung. And uh, in this series, we are taking a look at a number of different biblical characters who didn't quite make the all-star team. They didn't quite make the highlight reel. Uh, they didn't quite make like the, the famous superstar list. Um, and uh, yet, even though that was true in history, in heaven, they were heralded as heroes. They were famous in heaven because for the little moments that they got, as unsung as they may have been, uh, as little known as they may have been, as little as we may have chosen to name our kids after them, this was a group of people uh, who made much of their God in the moments that they were given. Never under the spotlight, never necessarily under, um, on big stages, but they made much of their God. And we want to look at these characters because in an era in which we're obsessed with fame and we're obsessed with likes, uh, we're obsessed with popularity, and we somehow believe that those things speak to and give significance, what an amazing thing to look at characters in the Bible who never made history fame but were heaven famous. And we want to become increasingly convinced what matters most is heaven's assessment of us. What matters most is that we are famous in heaven because the moments we have, whether they're big or small, on big stages or in subtle places, that we made much of our God and we looked a little bit like Jesus. This morning, uh, we are going to get to know a, a character who is going to teach us something about radical faith. Um. A virtue, by the way, which I believe we are going to need more and more and more as the days march on. And we're going to learn what that looks like. The kind of faith that makes heaven headlines. The kind of faith that heaven applauds. But we're going to learn it from, of all people, a prostitute by the name of Rahab. Um, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can uh, meet me in uh, Joshua chapter 2. Two, the Old Testament book of Joshua. We're going to be in the second chapter. And um, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, by the way, we are going to have the verses up here on the screen. Uh, if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, please allow us the honor of giving one to you. Uh, we would love to hand one to you as our gift. Um, if you head to the Connection Corner after the service, um, just let somebody know that you need a Bible and we'll be so thrilled to get one into your hands. But we're going to start to work our way through the story found in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start reading at verse 1. And um, man, prepare to be a little bit uh, fascinated um, because it is a fascinating story. Um, because it's in the book called the Bible, which is the most fascinating book. So, um, 
This is an amazing woman, a, a, a prostitute who teaches us about faith and makes heaven headlines, and we need to figure out what it looks like to become a little more like her. Verse 1, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. Woo! It's getting close. So, um, real quick backstory here. So, um, the Israelites, God's chosen people, have been enslaved in Egypt for about 430 years. And they've cried out to God. God has heard their cry, and he sends them a leader named Moses. And Moses leads them in this epic emancipation exodus in which millions of people are broken free from slavery, and they're sent into freedom, into the place that God is calling them. And the place that God is calling them is a promised piece of real estate that is often referred to as the promised land. Um, this is a paradise God has promised to his people in which they can begin to heal from the wounds of slavery. They can be begin uh, to make much of the name of God in the earth. This is a place that grandparents have talked about and these kids have known about for generations. And now in Joshua chapter 2, they are camped just a few miles away, about to take a hold of this land they've longed for. They can see it from the distance. The problem is it's occupied currently by uh, some powerful and scary people, some of them, you know, eight foot plus giants. You know the kinds of people who don't respond well to polite eviction notices asking them to leave. So Joshua, who is taken over the leadership mantle from Moses, understands that God has given us the promised land, but we are now going to have to go and get it. And I wish we had time to talk about the fact that just because God has given you a promise doesn't mean you have it, because sometimes there's some getting involved. And there is a fight on their hands. Joshua knows this. And what Joshua understands is that in order for us to take Canaan, which is the promised land, we've got to take Jericho, which is the bedrock of that entire area. If we take Jericho, we take Canaan. And so because he knows that, he sends two guys to go and spy and to gather intel, tell us what we're up against. Come back and give us a report so we can go in and take care of our business. So off go these two guys, these two spies. Let the adventures begin, and then the story gets weird. Second part of verse 1. So they, the two spies, went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Okay, time out. So, um... Maybe it's just me, but I don't know if anyone else maybe feels these guys maybe misunderstood their assignment a little bit. It doesn't, doesn't it seem like they are doing the wrong kind of scoping of the land? Maybe it's just me. They make a beeline straight for the red light district. These two, you know, brothel brothers clearly were not vetted very well by Joshua because what? They go straight to a prostitute's house, and they spend the night there. Let's pray. Um, don't you just love the Bible? If you don't read this book, you should really read it. There's some good stuff in here. Um, and if that's not strange enough, it's actually in that the most diabolical of all places, in this brothel, 
where we get introduced to our heavenly hero. We get introduced to an unsung hero, a woman of faith. And would you know it, it is the woman of the house herself, the premier prostitute in Jericho, Rahab. An enemy of God and an enemy of God's people. And on top of that, a woman who had dedicated her life to living in a way that was an affront to all that God was. Complete disregard for his principles. She sleeps with men for money. That's how she makes a living. And yet she somehow ends up on heaven's list of heroes. All right. Clearly, we have a little bit of catching up to do here um, to at least help return some level of confidence in, in the Bible. So let me, let me just give a, a couple of things that will be really key for us to note even as we move forward. Uh, number one, it would help us to understand something about accommodation. Something about accommodation. See, in that day and age, in that particular era, in that cultural context, there weren't a lot of hotels or, or, or motels or, or holiday inns. So if you're an outsider and you come into town and you have no family, there is no place for you to stay. Believe it or not, one of the most public places where you could go and stay for the night would have been a brothel. Now, that sounds a little convenient, but let me share something else. Um, it's good for us to know something about assimilation. Um, because if you want to pull into town as a foreigner and assimilate without standing out too much and being noticed, um, one of the best places to go would be a brothel. Because then people just assume you are just a regular, hot-blooded dude who has heard about the Canaanite women, and so you've come, you know, to have yourself a weekend. So, in some senses, one of the best ways to assimilate was to go into this shady location. But I think um, one of the more key things for us to understand is about information information. Uh, in an era before bars and barbershops and Bing, I don't even know if Bing is still a thing because um, Google, but whatever. If you wanted to get the deep intel of what was going on and who was who and what was what, the best place to go was a brothel because sometimes, and by the way, when I say sometimes, I mean super always, um, Men tend to brag a lot around women. Especially women they are trying to impress in one way or another. Let alone around women who are paid to make men feel safe and to feel like the only person on the planet, and to feel like they are just super awesome. Oh, my word, blah, 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 blah. And then we did this, and then we did that, and then we did this. And as we discover in a moment, 
some of the king of Jericho's men loved to frequent this spot. So if the walls in the brothel could talk, but they couldn't, but the prostitutes could. So one of the best places to gain the quickest intel, if anyone knew everything that was going on around town, that would be the place to go. Now, it is also worth me saying, I love the fact that God in his grace allows the language of this text to make very clear that there was no shady business going on. These spies did not go into that brothel to partake in brothelizing at all. Um, it is very, very clear that they did not partake. There was no hanky-panky. There was no funny business that these spies interacted in. Um, by the way, if we had time, we would talk about how you need to slow your roll. We as a church just need to, in general, slow our roll. Because just because he's sitting with her in the cafeteria in Alpha doesn't mean like, oh, diabolical. They're getting engaged. Just because I saw him talking to her or he posted on her wall or they went there or he said this. Therefore, it must be sometimes if you just understand the situation a little bit. Tell the person next to you, slow your roll. Tell them, just tell them. That's a nice way to get to know people. Um, the next verse is hilarious and also super terrifying, <laughs> but it's also hilarious. It says in verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. <laughs> so how bad are these guys at their job? I mean, they have barely got there. And the king already knows, like, oh, they're here to spy the land. Like, their fake mustaches, you know, are just sitting funny. It's like, yeah, they came in with their Israelite accents. They smell like manna. We could spot them from a, mile, from a mile away. This is just hilarious to me. He even knew why they were there. Now, this would be funny if it did not spell death sentence. These guys were in absolute trouble. Um... Now, another reason, obviously, I mean, or one of the reasons I suspect the king's men hang out here, and there are a couple of reasons that I think the king got word on these guys, but the speed at which information travels back to the king is pretty remarkable. Um, and he seemed to know that if there was an international threat, if there were spies they were likely to stop here first. But whatever the case, these guys are busted. And make no mistake about it, the king wants them dead. Verse 3. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. And it's so interesting how, how benign this royal message sounds, so neutral. Bring them out. But again, make no mistake, this is a death sentence. This is danger time. The king is going to undoubtedly torture these guys to extract as much information out of them as possible. Who sent you? What is the plan? Where are they located so we can take them out? And immediately he's done extracting information. He is for sure going to dispose 
of them. And if you've never heard this story, by the way, which I trust is true for some of us sitting in this room, you would and you should be freaking out right about now in this tense and dramatic and suspenseful moment. Because here's the picture. Rahab, this prostitute, is now standing in her doorway. The king has sent his soldiers, his men, to her house. And inside the house are these two spies that Joshua has sent. There is this powerful moment that is being described here. The king's men are outside and God's men are inside. The soldiers are standing outside and the spies are inside as Rahab stands in the doorway. I find it really interesting that what separates these two groups is this prostitute who now literally has the power of life and death in her Hand. Whatever she says next will determine the fate of these two guys in the house. And look at what she does, verse 4. But the woman, oh, she had already taken the two men and hidden them. What? She said, yep, the men came to me. I did not know where they had come from. False. At dusk, When it was time to close the city gate, they left. False. I don't know which way they went. False. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. False. And then it clarifies what she had done. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on her roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So here's this prostitute standing between the soldiers and the spies with a power to determine the fate of these spies. And she hides God's guys and lies to the king's men, sends them on the wildest of goose chases in the wrong direction. And she not only in that moment spares and saves the lives of these two guys, but she in essence spares and saves the plan of Joshua to take over Jericho, which was the bedrock of Canaan, which was the promised land. And in essence, this woman becomes part of how God's people entered the promised land. A prostitute. And heaven erupts in applause. And in that doorway, this lying prostitute proves herself a hero in heaven. Not because of her lie, but because of her faith. See, there's something that history may not pay too much attention to. But heaven cannot resist faith. 
Heaven cannot resist the willingness to risk it all, which is what this prostitute does. And I'm telling you, church, we would be wise to learn from her. Because you can make millions of dollars and you can have thousands of followers and you can be super insta-famous on earth. You can go to church. Uh, you can even have a pretty robust understanding of uh, the scriptures. You may even have never heard the word prostitute and you have no idea what that means. But if you do not have a risk-it-all kind of faith, I'm telling you right now, heaven is unimpressed. Because Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. I don't know what else you're doing, but if you do not have this heaven headline making faith, the kind of faith Rahab has in this story, heaven is unimpressed and God is not pleased regardless of what else you may or may not be doing. And as individuals and as a church, we want to be heaven famous. And that only happens when we live with this kind of faith. And this prostitute gives us a picture of what that looks like. And I think her faith teaches us a, a number of things about the kind of faith that heaven applauds. The kind of faith we would long to Emulate. And I love, uh, number one, what her faith teaches us about power, what her faith says about power. I don't know if you saw that in the story. I'm sure you did. Um, all right, let me, let me share something with you that I strongly suspect, and it's this. I strongly suspect that up until this day, Rahab was on the king's payroll as a trusted informant. The king knew if there is any place where I'm going to get the best of intel about what's happening around or what foreigners came in and where threat may be posed, I think it's at that brothel over there. And I think she served in many ways as a king's informant. One of the reasons I suspect this is because you notice the king sends her a really nice note. A personal note. He sent a note to Rahab asking her, would you please send these guys out that have apparently come to your house? I'm like, um, hang on a quick second. You are the king of Jericho. And you, you believe that there is an imminent threat to your empire, that there are spies in your land, and that they may possibly be in this house. And you sent a note, and you notice they don't raid her house. They ask her, are they here? And if they are, would you send them out? And they are willing to take whatever she says as truth. I would suspect the king would raid the house of a prostitute just to make sure, but they don't do that, which makes me think she was probably an informant for this king. That's so significant. All I'm saying is heaven loves the kind of faith 
that leverages its power to help the vulnerable. Because Rahab may have been a prostitute when we read the story, but in this scene, in that doorway, she stands with unspeakable power, as we mentioned a little bit ago. This woman literally has the power to save these guys' lives in their vulnerable moment or to be done with them. She stands between the threat and the threatened, and her voice held power. And what we learn is that her faith chose to leverage her power to help these vulnerable guys. Again, we may not pay attention to it. I was struck by this. I often don't pay attention to the fact that if you are sitting in this room, you are constantly standing in the doorway holding power. You are constantly standing between soldiers and spies. You are constantly standing between the vulnerable and the threat. And you are constantly in a position where you have the power to make some determination about what happens to the hurting, what happens to the vulnerable, based on what you do. I don't think we often pay attention to the fact that we have power in our voices. We have the power to raise our voice and change the trajectory of someone who is suffering. Power. We have the power of, of resources that allow us to literally bring some relief to somebody who is struggling. We don't often pay attention to the fact that we have the power of time that we can actually use it to sit and to listen to someone who is standing between falling apart and finding hope. We have the power of influence or connections or our physical Homes. And what I'm telling you is heaven is looking for the kind of faith that leverages the power that we have to help the vulnerable. And we are constantly standing in that doorway. And I love what we learn from Rahab. And by the way, if you study the scriptures, you will find there is no mistaking this truth. Um, James will say, without apology, faith without works is dead. And he's speaking about faith that works to help the hurting, faith that works to help the vulnerable. And he's saying, if your faith is not leveraging your power to help people in their vulnerable moments, it is not registering in heaven regardless of what anyone else thinks about you. I love what Rahab teaches us about power. what it looks like to find a way to help the hurting. Because that kind of faith is impressive to heaven. I don't know how impressive your faith is. The question is what you do with your power. And when you stand in the doorway between the threat and the threatened, and you use your power and you, you raise your voice, heaven is... Impressed When you stand in the doorway at school between the bully outside and the picked on kid on the other side and you do something for the sake of the picked on kid, heaven is impressed with, with that kind of faith. When you stand between the abused and the abuser, 
And you refuse to be silent anymore. You raise your voice to either report it or or to say or do something about it. Heaven is impressed with, with that kind of faith. When you stand between hopelessness and your home and you decide, I'm going to use this power to to take in or to take on uh, the vulnerable child, heaven is impressed with that kind of faith. When you and we don't realize, it's amazing how oftentimes we forget we are literally standing with our resources, with the ability to help the poor who are struggling if we would just leverage the power that we have. When you, by the way, volunteers who work with our kids, use your time to come over and over to Jen and say, hey, can I help? Do you guys need somewhere for us to come and help these kids who really can't run around, take care of themselves? Let's try it some week, see how that goes. But even in serving, using your time, you are leveraging your power. And heaven is deeply impressed. If our version of faith does not leverage our power to help the hurting and the vulnerable, heaven is unimpressed. And I'll tell you what is so ironic about a story like this is we will read it for the first time in our super pious, you know, church minds and we'll often say like, mm, prostitute, mm-hmm, mm, liar, mm, 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 mm. and heaven will look at us and say, Mm, not leveraging power, not doing anything with your faith. Mm-mm-mm-mm. We've decided what we think is like, no, not the prostitute, but listen, we can sit around and do nothing with the influence and the voice and the power and the resources that we have. And heaven is saying, no, not impressed. What would it look like for us to step into those spaces? I love what Rahab's faith teaches us about security. Again, this is obvious in the story, but it's worth uh, mentioning because Rahab is awesome. Um, In that doorway, she is staring outside at the promise of security. And I trust that makes sense, right? Because if, um, if she delivers to these soldiers these enemies of the state, and she just foils a plot to undo Jer- She will be a national hero. She has saved the day, and she ends up being in the king's debt, and now all of a sudden, if you mess with Rahab, you mess with the king. She would have protection for life, and not to mention she would have provision for life because all of a sudden, all the referrals imaginable are hers now. Her business would boom. She would be financially provided for for a very long time. And yet, staring at the promise of security, she still makes a choice to protect the spies. But even a step further, she realizes standing in that doorway, she's standing between the risk of life and death. Because, listen, if she gets caught as having hidden these enemies of the state, these spies... That would be treason against the king and treason against the kingdom. And she would be eliminated immediately. And she knows it. And yet still, she says, "Um, I'm going to choose to protect them. 
And by doing that, I am going to choose to risk it all. I am going to choose to risk the promise of security. And you better believe, once again, heaven erupts in applause because that's the kind of faith that is impressive to heaven. Again, history may love your church attendance and your robust knowledge of the Bible. But you have not impressed heaven until you've stood in the doorway and you've stared at whatever the thing is that promises to give you security and you've said, I am willing to risk it all for the sake of whatever I believe God is in the midst of. Because for many of us, there are a lot of things we may be aware of. And I think we've embraced a version of faith that can kind of stand in the doorway. And this is what it does. It goes outside and hangs out with the soldiers. Then it goes inside and hangs out with the spies. Then it goes outside when it's convenient, hangs with the soldiers, just so I can build up my security, just so I can make sure that if things go down, I always have the soldiers and I always have the king. Rahab's faith was decisive. She said, in this moment, I declare I am willing to risk it all. I am willing to lose it all. I am willing to lose protection and provision and my very life because of something I believe God is in the midst of. I'm willing to lose financial security that's in front of me for the generosity God calls me to live in light of. I'm willing to risk losing this super, super, super cute boy who doesn't love Jesus for the sake of singleness with his mission. I'm willing to, to lose it all. I'm willing to risk, you know, the medical health and the, the, the facilities we have here in the United States. I'm willing to risk that and to lay that down to go to some potential Zika-infested place to take the gospel where people have never heard it before. If, there's, if that's what God is in the midst of, I'm willing to risk it all. That's the kind of faith heaven is like. That is impressive. I'm willing to risk my retirement to help fight poverty. I'm willing to risk being liked in order to share hope with my friends at school. And I'm just asking, is your faith like Rahab's? Is your faith the kind of faith that says, I'm willing to lose the thing that promises security, whatever it is, I'm willing to risk it all for what I believe God is saying and what I believe God is in the midst of? Or is there still something standing outside your door that you aren't quite willing to, to lose, your reputation. Ah, it's too important. People like me too much. I don't want to mess with that. Like all oh, my career, though, do you know how close I am? I'm so close. If I say something about that situation that's going on at work, I'm going to be taken back years and years, and I'm not willing to, so I'm going to step outside for this one. Or is yours the kind of faith that grabs headlines in heaven because you're saying whatever it is, I'm willing to risk it. All. And I'm telling you, this kind of faith is going to become more and more necessary in the church. And not only that, I think there is coming a time very soon, and I suspect it's already here, in which we will no longer have the luxury of standing in the door. We are going to have to make very clear it's one or the other. And if you read the scriptures, you know the days are coming where we won't be able to teeter and, and live in this faith that can kind of be half in and half out. 
We are going to need to make the declaration, I am all in and I'm willing to risk it all. But how? How do we get there? How did Rahab get there? What made this prostitute of all people willing to risk it all? Look at verse 8. This is amazing. It says, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when he brought you up out of Egypt um, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. And we learn something about transformation. This is, this is awesome. I love what Rahab's faith teaches us about transformation because I don't think I don't believe you just wake up one morning and decide I am willing to risk it all. You don't just wake up one morning and decide I am all in. You don't just wake up one morning and decide today I'm going to stand in the doorway of opportunity and leverage my power to help the hurting and to help the broken. You don't just wake up and decide I'm going all in with this radical faith. No, something has to happen to you first. And for Rahab, Sometime between the spies coming to her house and the soldiers coming to her house, she has experienced a complete transformation. Whoever she was, the last time these soldiers saw her, she is not the same woman standing in the doorway that day. I think she has experienced some kind of an overnight revival. She has had a personal encounter with God that suddenly has made her willing to risk her life and risk her livelihood for some strangers she barely knows. And so I wonder if at some point the spies didn't just get carried away and they started doing their own version of blah, 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 and our God this, and let me show you, and then he did this, and let me tell you a little bit more about who he is and a little bit more about his hope because she says in this testimonial, we've all heard the stories about your God and we've all buckled in fear because we think they are true. But that's not the faith. It's not so much testimonial faith that she's speaking about. It's transformational faith. It's the last part of verse 11 where she says, For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now it's gone from we've heard about your God to I have experienced and had an encounter with this God. It's gone from I heard to I believe that he is who you say 
he is. She's making a radical statement. Her people would have worshipped a bunch of different gods. And these gods were claimed to have been in charge of the sky and the sun and the moon. And they were in charge of the earth and the rivers and the water and all of those things. And here she is making this declaration. I am convinced that your God is greater than our God. He's above all of them. He's the God of the heaven and he's the God of the earth. He's greater than all the gods down here and all the kings down here. This is no longer longer just a we've heard about him. She's making a personal declaration. She is denouncing her religion and she is declaring God of the Bible to be her God. Something has happened to this woman. She has believed something so deeply and has brought her to the place where she is saying God is above everything else. And God is greater than everything else. And the language that the author uses to describe the words that she uses are what give us a very clear sense. She's not speaking about the God out there. She's using very personal words and names to describe a God who she's not just heard about, but now she knows. Now she has encountered. Now she's experienced, which explains why all of a sudden she's willing to risk it all because she's encountered the God who is above it all. And I'm just telling you. If you study and you explore your version of faith, and it's not a version of faith that is willing to risk it all and lose it all, what we have to learn from Rahab is maybe we need to encounter God in a personal way to become more convinced that he is greater than all and he is above all. Because once you've had a personal and transforming encounter with a God who is above all, you have no problem giving it all up for him. But if you find yourself staring at security and staring at your reputation and saying, I don't know if I'm willing to risk it all, then I'm saying it may be time for you to plead with God to encounter you in a way that transforms you and convinces you he is above all. And for some of us, there may have been moments in our past where our faith was in that realm, but maybe something has happened and we've moved away from it. And maybe what Rahab would invite us to do is come back to the place where we cry out to God, would you show yourself to be greater than all so I'll be willing to give it all up? Because church, if that doesn't happen for us, we will constantly be threatened and we will constantly be going back and forth and we will never enter into everything that God has in store for us. Us. And we'll wonder even why the world around us isn't continually transforming because maybe there's an invitation for us to encounter him again and be transformed by him again. I love what her faith teaches us about transformation. And I'm struck because I've wondered why is there such a shortage of this kind of faith in me? And why is there such a shortage of this kind of faith? in the church. And maybe it's because we are content to read about him and to go to church every now and then, but we are not staring in the glorious face of a transcendent God who is above all. We are not encountering him in personal ways that allow us to say he is everything to me and therefore I'm willing to give up everything for him. We are having these light interactions with him every now and then, not Rahab. She was willing to give it all up. And I love um, what Rahab's faith teaches us um, about prostitutes. 
Um, I love what our faith teaches us about prostitutes because I know that there are some of us who struggle like I struggle, asking the question on a regular basis, like, yeah, but would God meet and encounter me? And would God transform me? And would God forgive me? And, and would God use me to change history even if people never find out about it? Would God, I love the fact that this story is about a prostitute who had a personal encounter with a God of the Bible, one that caused her to live in a radical faith that landed her in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Heaven was applauding this prostitute. And I'm just saying, if God would do that for a prostitute, then you better believe that if you cry out today and say, God, would you please have that transforming encounter with me? He will say yes. I love that story. I love this story. And Rahab, as um, some of you might know, ended up completely defecting. She made a deal with the Israelites that said, hey, when you guys come back and your God does his thing, would you please spare me? And they say, absolutely. And that's exactly what happened. And Rahab ends up marrying uh, an Israelite man, and they end up having a little baby, you know, and the baby's name is Boaz. And, and Boaz ends up marrying a lady named Ruth who was a widow, and uh, they end up having a baby named Obed. And Obed ends up having a baby named Jesse. And Jesse ends up having a baby named David. And they all keep having babies until eventually... The King Jesus is born. She becomes one of Jesus' grandmothers, a prostitute. And yet by faith, she finds herself caught up in the adventures of God. I love this. She becomes the, the, the grandmother of the one who stood in the doorway <laughs> between sin and between salvation. And he stood in the doorway between the threat of eternal judgment and those of us who were being threatened by judgment. And he was willing to risk it all and he was willing to give it all so that we would find life and we would find hope. I love the fact that God would take a prostitute, put her in his story, forgive her, transform her, and use her. I don't know what your experience excuses, but I think Rahab just took it away. I don't know what the Spirit's invitation is for you on your journey of faith. For some of us, it's, no, I believe God is above all, and he is, he is greater than all, but I do need to pray that he would give me the strength to stand in the doorways on a daily basis because I know of certain situations and I've not used and leveraged my power to help the hurting. And I need to do that more. Maybe as simple as me agreeing to serve. It may be as simple as me saying something at work. It may be as simple as me reporting that bullying situation that I see online. For some of us, you know, it may be that we have heard about him and we've come to church. But even as I talk about, would you be willing to give up your retirement? You're like, not a chance. Maybe the invitation is for you to plead with God. Would you please show yourself as a transcendent God who is above all, the God who will provide the greatest security imaginable if I'm willing to give it all up. And maybe the prayer for you is would you encounter me in a personal and compelling and transforming way. I don't know what his invitation is, but I know that the spirit of the living God wants to strengthen our faith and make us heroes in heaven. And frankly, we are going to need it as the days roll on. So Lord, I pray wherever we are, whatever it is you want to do in us, that we would be open to it and we would be convinced you are God above all. And we would be convinced and if the God above all can use a prostitute and, and call her to himself, thank you that you are that kind of a God, so merciful. Um, and you call all of us who have prostituted ourselves in one way or the other. We've sold out what you call us to 
in exchange for what we believe will bring us security. And so we just pray that you'd forgive us, you'd free us, and you'd deepen and strengthen our faith. For the sake of your name, for the sake of your mission in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.